Welcome to this new edition of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain AAOP Educational Podcast. In today's podcast, Dr. Jajot Sani will be our host. She's a clinical assistant professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and also sees patients in private practice. Her practice is dedicated to the uh, field of orofacial pain and oral medicine. In today's podcast, Dr. Sani will be interviewing Dr. Green, who has been involved for many years in clinical research and teaching in the area of temporomandibular disorders and orofacial pain, and his contributions have been very significant for our field. From 1965 to 1984, he worked with Dr. Daniel Laskin in the University of Illinois Chicago College of Dentistry Temporomandibular Joint and Facial Pain Research Center. From 1986 to 1995, he worked at Northwestern University Dental School with Dr. Harold Perry as co-director of their temporomandibular disorder clinic. Since returning to the University of Illinois Chicago in 1995, Dr. Green has served as director of orofacial pain studies. He was a clinical professor in the Department of Orthodontics, and he has contributed many articles and lectures to the orthodontic specialty in the U.S. and abroad. He has published over 150 articles, book chapters, and abstracts, and was co-editor of a multi-author book about temporomandibular disorders in 2006. A new multi-author book on temporomandibular disorders was co-edited with Dr. Green and Dr. Laskin and released in 2013. In 2015, Dr. Green was one of the four co-editors on a book entitled Temporomandibular Disorders and Orthodontics. He is a life member of the American Academy for Facial Pain as well as the International Association for Dental Research. He retired from the University of Illinois, Chicago in 2018 and is currently Clinical Professor Emeritus. Welcome, Dr. Sani and Dr. Green. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Moreno. Thank you, Dr. Green, for joining in today for this um, session uh, on TMD. Thank you, Dr. Green, again, for uh, being a part of this podcast. Um, starting first um, with the topic which you chose, uh, over-treatment successes for TMD, what are the negative consequences? What was your motivation in selecting this important topic? Well, the motivation for this actually uh, goes back a long way in my career because um, we're, we're in a field where there's controversy. And there's been controversy uh, all throughout the 20th century. But we hope that by the time we reach the 21st century and we began to actually have evidence-based information and guidelines and uh, IADR support and uh, NIH support, that everybody would be moving in the direction of doing the right thing. And instead, what we find is that we still continue to have a controversy, and the controversy revolves around the question of how much, what's the right way to diagnose people, and then based on how you diagnose people, what's the right way to treat them. And so I, for many years, have wanted to address this topic formally, and I finally decided I'm going to do it, and we're actually working on a paper with my colleague, Dr. Danielle Manfredini of Italy, and we're going to write a paper on the, some of the things we're going to be talking about here today. Thank you, Dr. Green, for introducing the topic. Um, what's the impact of uh, these treatments on patients, if you could share that? Well, I think the main 
point to start out with is that patients expect two things when they walk into your office. They expect to hear you answer two questions. The first question is, what's wrong with me? And the second question is, what are you going to do about it? And so we have a heavy responsibility in both of those regards, because if you don't do the first one well, then the second one won't go well either. So the idea of how to do a diagnosis uh, has a lot to do with what your belief system is as you first meet patients. So let's assume for the sake of discussion that you have a, uh, a modern approach to these um, kinds of temporomandibular disorders that you understand them and that you can and will assume that you can differentiate temporomandibular disorders from other oral facial pain entities. So we won't spend any time talking about them. So if you do have a, a, an initial impression, let's say that the patient has a temporomandibular disorder, what kind of a diagnostic workup are you going to do? Now, the classic diagnostic workup in TMD is a history and a physical examination. Sometimes imaging is used and sometimes it's not. There are no other uh, approved and recognized technical approaches to diagnosis. And then based on what you learn from your history and your physical, you formulate a treatment plan and you take it from there. So the fact that some people don't follow what I just said changes everything. So some people have a different protocol for when you walk in and they say have a uh, an entire uh, set of things that they like to do, what they call diagnostic things. And they have different kinds of measurement systems and they have different kinds of uh, electronic devices and they have special imaging techniques that they use. And so they do a workup that is way beyond the traditional history and physical and, and possible imaging and instead come up with a very complex set of data by which they are then going to inform the patient that the patient has a very complex problem and a very complex treatment plan is about to come afterwards. So that's the first impact on the patient. Thank you, Dr. Green. Um, that actually is very important information which you've shared. Um, do you think it's fair enough then to say from what we've discussed um, so far that if conservative treatments have failed to manage patient's symptoms, it does not mean that there should be an escalation to more aggressive or invasive uh, forms of treatment methods? No, that's a very common uh, myth and fallacy in the world of medicine and dentistry as well which is if you didn't get better with a little bit of treatment, we're going to do a whole lot of treatment and somehow you'll get better. And it, that really has a, a terrible set of logical fallacies attached to it. And if we take, for example, in the temporomandibular disorders and just even divide it into the three basic disorders that we care about the most, which is my, um, muscle pain, joint pain, and disc problems. Uh, if you start with muscle pain, and you are not succeeding in getting a good result in treating that, uh, that doesn't mean that you get to escalate to any particular uh, radical treatment because there is no radical treatment for muscle pain. So you know you can't do surgery on muscle pain, and you can't take their head apart, and there's no other great analysis to be done. There's no other great intervention to be uh, looked for. So you are dealing with chronic pain, and instead of escalating, you should be saying to yourself, oh, oh, I have a chronic pain patient here. Now it's time for me to switch to chronic pain management rather than 
initial or acute pain management. In the case of joint problems, there's the possibility of escalation from um, simpler treatments to some forms of minor intracapsular treatments. And that would include such things as injections, for example. But it wouldn't be an automatic um, green light to go in and do some big surgery just because the patient didn't get better. Because once again, you may simply be dealing with resistant situation, a non-responding person, a person with chronic pain uh, attributes and uh, needs for chronic pain management. Thank you uh, for answering that, Dr. Green. And then the follow-up question would be then, how would the placebo-based treatments uh, be involved or the relevance of placebo-based treatments in these kind of scenarios would be uh, playing an important role? Well, I think the most important thing you can say about a placebo is that every treatment you use comes with a free placebo. You don't have to pay for it. So the problem comes when you start believing in yourself as the great healer and not understanding that you are getting help from Dr. Placebo. So a huge mistake that people make is that they have a system for treating people. And then if they get better, they attribute all that uh, improvement to their wonderfulness of their uh, selecting that treatment and app- application of that treatment. But in fact, every patient has the potential, uh, every, every treatment rather, has the potential for a placebo component. We know that. In addition to that, there are other considerations. The fact is that some people are going to get better because of regression to the mean, which uh, I think most of our listeners understand means that you've met them at a high point of their symptomatology, and now they're going to be getting better over time. The placebo component has to do with your interaction with them, but there's the natural tendency to resolve. There's also this nature of our conditions, TMDs, is that they are not accelerating conditions automatically. They're instead fluctuating conditions. So many of the patients will have up and down fluctuations, and you may be lucky enough to be the doctor treating them while they have a fluctuation. So we have an expression to cover this. And the expression is that a patient can get better because you're treating them, while you're treating them, or in spite of the fact that you're treating them. And in, you have to really think very carefully about which one of those applies in every case. I think there are some other impacts on the patient as well. And then we'll turn our attention to the impact on the dentist and what, what's going to happen uh, to them if they have uh, a treatment, what I call an over-treatment success. So let's go back to our original uh, premise here, which is that over-treatment success literally is defined as uh, you did more treatment than the patient needed. They needed X and you did 2X, 3X, or 10X. And so since you don't really know, uh, unless you're you know, making an analysis of some sort, you're going to take credit for that treatment and you're going to believe that that treatment was required. But the patient has to go through the treatment. So what's the impact on the patient? The patient, for one thing, is going to pay a lot more money. They're going to have a lengthier treatment than they should have had because it takes more time to do more. And they're going to have the discomforts that come with some of those treatments. And most important of all, and this is where we need to really turn a lot of attention, is that they're going to have irreversibility of these, of many of these over-treatments. So that if it is an over-treatment and even may be successful in the beginning, what if it turns out later that it's not successful? 
and the, have a relapse, and now you've done irreversible changes and you can't go back to the beginning. And finally, the very last thing that I would say about this is that the wrong message is being communicated to the patient about what the doctor-patient relationship is in pain disorders. They believe that they have a problem and that you're the carpenter who's going to fix it. Instead of understanding that they have a symptomatic disorder that will involve self-treatment combined with professional treatment. Thank you for elaborating that. That's really important, again, for us all to understand, I think, uh, in respect to treating these patients. So, again, what's the impact, you would say, in a broader view on these dentists uh, who are treating these patients? Well, I think the impact on the dentist is, first of all, the idea that there's a, there's a term in psychology called confirmation bias. And that literally means that if you have things that are um, turning out the way you think they should be turning out, your bias about that will be confirmed. So if you're, and, and you understand, I hope everybody in our audience understands that what we're talking about here today mainly is the idea not of medicine versus surgery, but really the third pathway that Dr. Manfredini and I wrote about, which is the dental skeletal adjustment and change pathway where you're going to do bite changing procedures and jaw repositioning procedures. That's really the main concept of overtreatment that I'm emphasizing today. I'm not talking about whether surgery is overtreatment because surgery can be proper treatment and I don't want to address surgery at all today. That's not going to be on my list. But when we talk about these mechanical treatments, um, if you believe in them and you do them on a patient, and then the patient improves, you're going to confirm your bias toward believing that that's a good thing. So that's my first point. Uh, my second point is that it makes you even more likely to resist people who tell you that you're not doing the right thing. So if you are saying, well, I'm having success, and then you're trying to come at them with the saying, well, this is not evidence-based treatment and more conservative approaches could have been done, and so instead of doing X, you did 2X or 3X, then you are dealing with a person who says, well, you, you can't convince me because I already am having success. I'm doing just fine, and I wish you would leave me alone. Um, thank you, Dr. Green. Yeah, that's, again, a very important point you've raised. Um, and that actually would lead us to thinking, um, I mean, how would it impact uh, the profession of artificial pain? Um, you know, especially since we've now become a specialty of ADA. So how would you like to comment on that? Well, I'm going to say a little bit more about the dentist too as well, and then lead that more into how the profession as a larger group is affected. Uh, other other um, bad things for the dentist would be that there will be a decrease in money earned per patient if they adopt a more conservative posture, because as we all know, the more conservative therapies are not as expensive and time and uh, long, uh, long term um, uh, amount of work that's done. And the, uh, you know, I'll assume that everybody wants to do the right thing, but if you can't convince yourself that the right thing is to do less, uh, I don't believe that people do the wrong thing and just to make more money. I actually believe that most people who are doing what I consider to be over-treatment are simply misguided and need to be educated and learn more about the modern approaches. There's another interesting problem for the dentists, and this also ends up relating to the profession, 
is that you tend to uh, um, affiliate with other true believers who believe like you. So it isn't usually an isolated case that you're standing in your office and believing the wrong thing. You also belong to some institutes or you've taken courses at some institutes or you belong to study clubs and other kinds of educational institutions. You've gone to weekend courses that are postgraduate opportunities and you're sitting in a room of other true believers and they all end up reinforcing each other. And then finally, what that leads to, in a way, is a very paradoxical outcome, which is a sort of a cynical attitude about scientists. And they tend to speak of scientists as being uh, living in an ivory tower and being uh, not wet, wet-fingered dentists, but somehow just theoretical uh, guys who have a lot of ideas but aren't out there in the trenches working. Of course, we know that's not true because the majority of us who are in the pain uh, or facial pain business have been involved heavily in clinical work with a daily load of patients in addition to whatever research we might have been conducting. So I think all of these are impacts on the dentist who gets into that wrong track. So Dr. Green, uh, since you mentioned all these important and interesting points, the question arises, why are these treatment modalities still being used, um, uh, especially if there's so much evidence you know, against them or um, defying these concepts? Well, that's, that is really my central point here, is that I was hoping that by the 21st century, we would begin to see a decline in that. And we are seeing a decline in that. For example, a paper, a paper published recently by Schiffman and Associates uh, reports survey data of a very large PBRN uh, network um, of dentists, and they compared it with the data from 10 or 15 years ago, and there has been a change. So 10 or 15 years ago, there was more mechanistic dentistry being done to TMJ patients when they would survey a large group of random dentists. Uh, in the new paper, there was a much less being done, but it's far from zero. So I think the answer is that we are, we are making progress. We're always making some progress, but we also have tremendous resistance. And the resistance should not be underestimated because they're very strong and they're very sincere about their beliefs. Uh, once again, I don't have a cynical view about this. I don't believe that they do it only to make more money or only to be more uh, fancy than everybody else. I believe that they believe. And if that's true, and they are true believers, then we have a harder challenge, actually, to overcome. There also may be people who simply don't want to listen to anything, and they're going to always... Dentistry has a tendency to be isolated. You can work alone in your office. You never have to go to a hospital. You never have to go before any committees. You never have to have peer review. So literally, you could be in the rest of your uh, life standing in your office alone with a big sign out in front that says TMJ, uh, specialty here. And uh, then the patients will come in and they'll never see another dentist, they'll just see you. So that leads us to the final question would be the, what was the impact, the greater impact on um, the profession of official pain? Well, I think, I think in terms of the profession, the fact that we now have specialists is both good news and bad news. Um, the good news is it's wonderful to have a specialty. The bad news is there aren't very many of us, and it's a really small specialty, and it's the most controversial specialty that there is. 
if you go to the endodontist, the radiologist, the periodontist, the pedodontist, and you ask them about their specialty, they will not be complaining about a tremendous amount of controversy in their fields. And they're very happy to be specialists because their body of specialty is recognized by generalists. And the generalists understand if I send a patient to an endodontist, I know what they're going to do. If I send a patient to a periodontist, I pretty much know what they're going to do. There's always some minor differences among practitioners, but there's no great controversies of uh, X versus Y that is going on. So in our field, we have this very small but very nice and distinguished body of, uh, of special people who have spent many years dedicated to the field, but we have only 12 educational programs. They're small and have somewhere between two to five or six patients, uh, students per year. And uh, they turn out a certain number of people, many of them are not from the USA, so they come from another country and go back to another country. And that means there's less specialists here for us to go to. So how do we get the generalist community of dentists to recognize that the specialty is, is here and that it offers what we offer? Because there is almost no disagreement within the specialty. The specialty is very uniform. They follow the guidelines that have been developed for the specialty that are by, uh, uh, administered by CODA. And so the programs are teaching essentially the same body of modern evidence-based information. And so if we can get the public, meaning the both the um, general public as well as the general dentistry, public to understand that there is a special group and if you're lucky enough to have anyone nearby you should be considering and referring to them because you will be getting the right thing now on the other hand unfortunately because there are no limits on people declaring themselves to be tmj uh, special interests in their advertising and for example on the web you will have patients who might go on the uh, computer and look up for somebody to help them with a TMJ problem, and they'll have a very hard time discriminating between a board-certified uh, ABOP you know, person and a person who simply says, um, our office has special interests in, t in facial pain and TMJ, and we welcome your coming here. And then they lay out all kinds of enticements to come. So that's what we're up against. Thank you so much, Dr. Green, for your valuable time and insights into this important topic. I'm sure this information was highly useful for our listeners. Do you have any other comments to make or any final thoughts before we leave the podcast? Yes, I do. First of all, I want to thank both you and Dr. Marino for inviting me to do this podcast. And I've enjoyed uh, talking with you. And I'm looking forward to having uh, members of our group and other dentists, we hope, listen to the podcast. I do have a few other comments that are sort of final wrap-up comments I'd like to make uh, that I think are kind of secondary and tertiary effects of, of this over-treatment phenomenon. For example, um, the, the patient advocacy groups are very angry at the dental profession, and they have a right to be because so the patient advocacy groups exist, and I'm speaking mainly of the TMJ Association, and I believe there's another Chronic Pain Alliance Association and their people, um, the members who, who uh, come to those associations are very sad because of the way they've been treated. 
And of course, they've had irreversible treatments that have gone badly. So I think we have to deal with the reality that we're that they they would like to see the dental profession improve in the ways that I've been talking about today. In addition, we have an, an interesting public relations problem. We're, we have a medical profession out there that looks at us and wonders what we're doing. And at the same time, they're not the least bit interested in what we're doing because they don't want to do it. So we have an interesting uh, paradox, which is the medical profession is wondering why, are they, why is it every dentist that I deal with seems to have a different viewpoint about these things. And meanwhile, I hope they never come to me because we don't learn anything in medical school about these patients. So I think there's an interesting gap there. Um, I think there's a problem with some of the um, uh, meetings that are being run by some of the uh, so-called scientific societies that aren't really very scientific, and they'll sponsor a whole event on TMD and facial pain because they get they get um, money for those events and they have debates and they bring people on and they let them fight with each other and then they have an audience and usually those are not high level things and then another issue that I have been concerned about is that I think we're failing in our responsibility to educate postgraduate dental students. Uh, a lot of us are concerned about the undergraduate curriculum and we now, as you know, have developed a new undergraduate curriculum, which I believe will become part of the matrix of the dental schools. But what about the postgraduates? Many of the postgraduate specialties actually require having some TMD taught and yet in most schools it isn't taught so they fake it or they somehow get somebody to come in and be a, a lecturer for three lectures and disappear. So we have a responsibility to take on that educational uh, goal. And then finally, my very last point is that there's a commercial side to this thing for companies that produce products. So the companies who produce products that they claim are going to help us in our work are generally not selling us anything we need. And so the more that dentists deal with these companies and encourage them to manufacture products that we don't need as diagnostic instruments or different forms of uh, imaging that doesn't have to be done on people, the more that happens, the more that encourages the bad side of what we've been discussing here today. So in conclusion, I hope that I've persuaded the audience today that there is overtreatment. It's not something we can turn our face away from. We have to be honest about it. We have to call it out when we see it, and we have to do the best we can to work together to unify ourselves and work, work toward a better world in the future. So thank you again for inviting me. Thank you so much, Dr. Green. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about this subject or any other topics, please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.aaop.org. Thank you for listening.